Box and the Bagel is a production of Kenjamin Media, a curated series of conversations about things that matter. For more information about our podcast, please go to KenjaminMedia.com. Do you think we should change our names from Joshua and Kenny to Ezekiel and Jedediah? Ponder. What I sometimes... Who's, who would be Ezekiel? Um, I, I have no uh, no particular interest in either name. Jedediah. Feels very rich. It feels very uh, Gentile. Jedediah? Yeah. Feels very <laughs> Gentile. I think of that as such a Jewish name. Feels very, very Gentile, like with an axe. Like, very Gentile, like, you know, out in the country somewhere. A man with an axe, like a Paul Bunyan kind of name is what you're saying. Uh, just, but more biblical. Paul Bunyan with a Bible is what it feels like to me. Uh, just, you know, very sort of homesteady. Homesteady. Uh-huh, you yeah. hear that a lot. Ezekiel. When I say the names Ezekiel and Jedediah, I feel a celebration is to follow. It feels, celebra- it feels celebratory to you? Yes. Ezekiel and Jedediah feels very celebratory. It feels big and grand in a celebratory way. As opposed to Tim and John. Feels very insignificant to me. Steve and Bob. Nothing. I get nothing. But when you say Ezekiel and Jedediah have walked into the room, the whole room quiets. And people turn their heads and say, ooh, who are those guys? Yeah. (laughs) Not not feeling it? I am not feeling (laughs) it. Let me ask you this really important question. When I say celebration and ritual and the kind of event idea, to me, they, they all bring up the idea of events. Uh, and in theory, and in a, in a positive way, this idea of connection to family, to friends, to something. I mean, mm-hmm. that to me is the ideal of the notion of celebration and ritual, is it is relational and joyful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so, by, so that's by, my... By, that's, by and large, I would say that that is... That's, right. So that's my kind of generic definition outside of context of my own experience. But what, how would you That's not a definition define? of celebration, though, is it? That's just, that's an, that's just part of what, what you do when you are celebrating, right? Well, to me, it's a definition. Or is, so, or is, or is for you, this, the definition of celebration is connecting with people. Well, connecting around some, something meaningful. The, the connection around some event or date or mm-hmm. moment that marks something in time or personal history, that's sort of how I define it. Do you have a different definition or? No, uh, no, no. I, so, so I, I just wanted to get, so yeah. So, so connecting with others uh, in order to mark an occasion of some sort. Uh, yes. And make it and, and make that occasion more meaningful. Yes. In so doing. Yes. And then that's the definition of celebration. Then ritual around the idea of celebration is then creating something that repeats or continues over time, right? To give it even a richer sense of meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can. I mean, I don't think a ritual has to repeat. I think... I, I Could be a one-time, one-off? I think so. I've never really thought about that before. But I mean, I think that you could create a ritual for a single event, couldn't you? I think you could. Well, is it a ritual? Uh, what when I think of when I think of the de- I don't know what the actual definition of ritual. I might look it up as we're speaking. But when I think of a ritual, a ritual t- suggests something that is repeated. It becomes ritualized. It becomes something that is done again, wh- which makes it a ritual. If it's not a ritual, it's just a thing you do once. Yeah. Well, let's so let's talk a little bit about the, that. My the way I think of a ritual 
is a, a an act or acts that add meaning to an occasion or an event, whether that is done one time or done over and over, as you might do, say, on Shabbat. But I think you can create a ritual, so you can create some kind of, you know, uh, it's like a value added behavior, mm -hmm. basically, in order to make that the celebration or whatever the event is more meaningful, right? So ritual to me, th the acts that are performed in a ritual in and of themselves are more or less bereft of meaning, right? Striking a match, lighting a candle. It's the meaning that you ascribe to them and how and why they are meaningful in that particular context that, that matters and that make it a ritual. So the ritual is just a thing that adds meaning. I don't think that it has, I mean, I would say it's an act that adds meaning. I don't think that it is, uh, but I don't think it has to be repeated. That's interesting because I, when I think of ritual, I only think of it in the context of something that is, that is repeated, like something you, you were raised with that was done in your family, like around, let's say a holiday, let's say like Thanksgiving. Each year we gather yeah. around Thanksgiving mm -hmm. And in the old days, people would watch football in a room, and some people would be in the kitchen cooking in a room. These are rituals that are around a certain holiday that we all come to look forward to each year, and the repeating of them each year adds to the depth of their meaning. And we look back on them and we say, we've been doing this for years. I remember doing this as a kid with my dad, now I'm continuing this pro this endeavor as I age with others. This yeah. is to me what a ritual embodies, a meaningful I, ritual. I, I think that I think repeating the ritual adds, as you said, depth of meaning for mm -hmm. sure. Let's imagine that I'm going to, I've had a car uh, for 15 years and I've named the car and, and I have some deep, you know, I have a connection to this object. Car? Yeah. Like that blue, what was that blue comet you had as a child? Yeah. And strange, I was actually thinking of a of a Volkswagen Beetle my sister used to own, a green Volkswagen Beetle that she mm -hmm. called Parsley. But anyway. Did you sister, name that Comet? I don't name cars. My sister names cars. But that car was a Comet, right? It was called a Comet? It was. It was a, it was a Ford Mercury Comet. So anyway, so let's imagine that I have a, a car that I've had for a long time and I have some sentimental attachment to. And I'm going okay. to sell the car. I'm going to get rid of the car or something, right? Mm -hmm. I might create some ritual to make the the separation of between me and the car more meaningful. And that's never going to happen again, but I could ritualize that event. Mm -hmm. Okay. In order to in order to in order to make it more meaningful and it will never right. happen again. Like that time you you said a car, I mean you might want to make it more relational like that time you sold your cousin Stephen to those people from Connecticut. That would be more of a, a relational experience. You know, I didn't want to uh, uh, <laughs> ritualize that. I just wanted that to be over with as quickly as possible. <laughs> I feel like there should be a disclaimer here. Uh, there, there is no actual uh, selling of human beings condoned by this podcast. That was humor for humor's sake. Anyway, in today's world, I always feel like we need to explain shit because people will take shit and run with it and you'll get mail and death threats and the whole thing. I'm glad you did that. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't actually sell your cousin Stephen though, I right? didn't. I did not. I really didn't. It was I, a dream. I, I, I do I have a cousin Stephen though. I do. The guy with the big curly hair. Didn't he have a lot of like an afro, like a Jufro years ago? I don't, I don't who am think I thinking of? Alan. Alan. I think of Alan. No, not Alan. No, Alan. No, Alan is Stanley's kid. Was, who yeah, was the Alan, cousin you had? But I think, did Alan ever? No, it was Stephen. I'm thinking of Stephen. He did have no. like a big Jufro. No, I don't think so. Who Your you father's side, that no, guy kind of spoke in a very 
erudite, obnoxious, erudite voice years ago. No. Who am I thinking of? It wasn't his name's not Steven? On my dad's side? Yeah, on your dad's side. I had a cousin named Larry. Larry, that's who it is. I'm thinking of Larry. I'm sorry. I, I've, in my head, I'm, it was on my, da- on my dad's side. Yes, yeah, Larry. That's who I was thinking of. The big Jufro. Remember? Larry had the big hair. I think Larry did have a lot of he hair did. at one time. He had the big hair. Yeah. By the way, Jufro is not a word you hear very often, and I'm not even sure it's a word you can use anymore. Because it feels like there's appropriation in that, but it was the word we used in the 70s and 80s to describe it, just to put it in context. There really should be salons that's just for Jew hair. And I, I'm not sure that Jews have a distinctive enough hair. Do you remember first- my fucking hair from from you know high school? Yeah, days? but one could just describe if, that as really thick hair. It doesn't if necessarily. I had, well, if somebody had, if somebody had been able at that time to, to first of all, hit me to some kind of product, I would have been grateful. <laughs> Your hair stood up by itself. You didn't need, pro- I need, I had very thin, like baby's tush, fine hair. My hair needed product. I needed mousse and all that shit when I was in high school. See, everybody, wants anything. What, everybody wants what they don't have. You had the kid and play hair. Your head, your head just stood yeah. like six feet above your. Your yeah. hair stood six feet above your head. Yeah. And when you were like a, a eight year old, you could get on rides at Disneyland that were way ahead of you because of your hair was like a foot and a half by itself. But no, see, at that age, I did not. At that age, I didn't. It just sort of got bigger as I got older. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, ritual. I I think yes, the, uh, the the depth of meaning can grow if it is something that is repeated. But I don't think a ritual has to be something that. Is okay, repeated. you make a good point about the car. Or about telling your cousin. So so yeah. let me ask you then about your personal experience with ritual, which I'm sure is much richer than my personal experience with ritual and celebration. Like, oh let's start with, let's start with this. What do you what's the first celebration that relates to you or that you were involved in that you rem- have an actual memory of from childhood? I have some vague memory of a very early birthday party. How early? Probably like kindergarten age. Mm-hmm. I have a vague memory of it, and I can't tell if it's because I have some vague memory of a photograph that I've seen uh-huh. many, many years ago. Film. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. Or the, yeah, the Zap Ruder film might mm-hmm. be what I'm thinking of. I don't know. I remember I had a big crush on Andrea Nagin. I don't know who that is. That was so a that, Hawthorne girl? No, what Hawthorne? I wasn't. Yeah, girl? No, I was, at, I was at Warner Avenue at that oh, time. Oh, that was the Warner Times. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah, I remember I had a big, big crush on Andrea Nagin. So that that had to have been like kindergarten or first grade. I was so into girls from so young. It was crazy. I was always girl crazy. Always. Interesting. Before that, my Allison, the girl, like when I was, you don't know that story about me when my, my neighbor Allison was over, I was like three years old or four years old and my mom couldn't find us and she saw two pairs of feet behind the drapes sticking out from under the drapes. And she said, "What are you doing back there?" I said, "We're just getting acquainted." <laughs> I don't. I don't actually remember that story. Yeah. Although now that you tell me, I think I may have. But what did that mean, getting acquainted to a three-year-old? Were you making out, or were you just standing behind the drapes? I don't know, man. But I just always love being around girls. So that's funny. My earliest memory. Now that we're talking about the ritual of girls, my earliest memory of having a crush on a girl. I'm gonna say was first or second grade it was Na- girl's name was nancy sable did you know her in high school oh, yeah, nancy, her, nancy sable yeah. I, I didn't know her in high school but in, we, we were both in a gymnastics exhibition after school like an evening thing we were chosen so it was a special you were, thing. You were in a gymnastics com- competition yeah i was very athletic when i was a child actually um 
Yeah, I was the I was the the boy chosen to to highlight this for the parents the gym gymnastic stuff. It's like an obstacle coursey thing. You're doing like pommel horse and rings. Were you doing like an iron cross at like no sixth grade? What were you doing? It was it was more creative. It was more like you moved around a room, going through things and jumping through circles. And oh, that's weird. I vaguely remember. It. But Nancy Sable, she was she had this very you have you have very face. powerful arms. Yes, and I've you know I have very driving thighs, as many have said. I have the driving thighs. You can get you can you can, there's a pill you can take for that in in Saudi Arabia, but it's very hard to get. Yeah. But anyway, I digress. So that's the earliest memory I have of that. But the earliest memory I have of a celebration, and this is maybe why after this, I never really enjoyed celebrations, birthdays in particular, um, my own, I should say, not I enjoy others, but I've never enjoyed my own. It was the the last birthday, I was four, before my parents got divorced. Mm. And it's really the only childhood birthday I have any memory of at all. I mean, oh. even up to the, the, the after my fourth birthday, you know what the next birthday I remember was? My birthday. No, no, it was my birthday. Oh. And I. when was the birthday that I, you and me and Jason and Evan and my dad went to Pat Collins, the hip hypnotist? Oh. We were like 16. <laughs> it might have yeah. been 16, right? Yeah. That was a club in Los Angeles who had this woman who was very dramatic, who did hypnosis on stage. And she would choose each night. She would do a show and choose people in the audience. And that night she chose, did you go up or was it just Jason and Evan? I went up. I remember going up. It was. I think all three of you. Actually I remember going. I remember going up and pretending that I was hypnotized. Well, you think you pretended you were hypnotized. <laughs> That's correct. Your pants were off for a lot of that, and you didn't remember that after the show. I just want to point that out. But it was. It was a very entertaining show, and she was a huge woman with makeup all over. I mean, she was like a very dramatic woman of the, her time and very talented. I mean, at the show, I don't know if she was a hypnotist. I don't know anything about that. But uh, but you and the four of us friends for my birthday and three of you were chosen to go up on stage. And that's the second birthday I remember after my fourth birthday. So think about that from four to 16. I have not one memory of a birthday, not one, literally not one. Uh, I don't have that that many. I can remember 10 and that's probably it. 10 until I was like, yeah. But did you, what, what, what did you learn or what did you take up in terms of meaning about like the celebration of birthdays? Like, was that something that, that, was it fun in your family? Did your mother enjoy that? Do you have any, what, what are your memories around the celebration? The idea of the celebration or Hanukkah or anything else? Like what, what was celebration like for your family when you were a child, for you, in your memory? Was that yeah. a positive thing? Do you remember having fun times with your mom and your sister or your dad or whomever? I don't, I don't really have many mem- memories of that of at that? all. I am trying to think of it as you're asking me. I don't, um, you know, there were mostly, except for that 10th birthday party where it was all boys and we lived in a huge house. This is before you and I knew each each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, a massive house. It made the house that we lived on, on Ambassador, look sort of gamutless. Which I thought was a very big house, by the way. Yeah, this thing was far, far bigger than that. Had a huge, mm-hmm. huge swimming pool and a tennis court. It was nuts. It was insane. It was all boys and and just kind of had this big swimming pool party. But but other than that, you know, I think that my part, birthday parties and stuff were pretty modest, very modest. Right, but is that small because affairs? And I don't, I don't know. I don't have a lot of memory of. Is that because maybe your parents didn't value celebration? Like, was that not valued in your family, this notion of celebrating each other or celebrating events? Was that not something valued? 
Yeah, it's a, such a good question, and I don't, I don't know. I wish that I, my mom were still alive so we could talk about this. I, I, I don't. I mean, we certainly look. We did Shabbat every Friday in my house until I went to college. Every single Friday, whether so that I was with my, you. yes, whether I was with my mom or my dad after they split, we always did. We didn't right. miss it. Um, so and that I, was seen as a celebration and a ritual. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, but, and, and I don't, I have a lot of memories of other important birthdays or being made to feel important in that way, in that way. My mom always made me feel like I, she, you know, cared um, and that I was important. Throughout the year, not just on a ritual or not just on a celebratory day. Yeah, no, no, throughout, no, Throughout, throughout, yeah. Throughout, every day. Yeah, every day. All days. Yeah. So, but I don't. That's it. But I, but I be, I grew into an adult for whom ritual became very, very important. When I don't know when exactly. Like, wh- what do you mean? Like describe that more. What ritual um, became like? How did ritual become important to you? I, I just grew into somebody who loved ritual, who loved adding meaning to events by creating rituals for them, uh, whether that was for Passover or um, going to the Playboy Jazz Festival every year, you know, and doing certain mm-hmm. things. I mean, just like ritual became very important. Um, and and for example, like that thing, like going to the Playboy Jazz Festival every year for, right. you know, I probably did that, I did that with John probably for 15 or 20 years. That is that is one of those things where doing it every single year did add, did add to it, yeah. Right, because that kind of annual ritual, right, allows for anticipation, Mm-hmm. excitement it allows for the building of all of those things right mm-hmm. there's the it's not just that three hours or five hours or eight hours or whatever it is or two days it's 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 much so much more than that yeah but i want right like yeah. if you have a, if you are someone go ahead and finish sorry i was gonna say like if you are someone that grows up with birthdays and and having your birthdays made a big deal right so you know, like whatever your time frame, six months out, three months out, you you start an excitement builds, and energy inside of you builds. The conversation maybe in your family starts to build around what do you want to do this year? How do you want to make it special? There is a feeling of meaning that that it is greater than simply that one event. Yes, if you're right, my, like if some you're my daughter, that, that I'll conversation give you an example. starts like eleven months before. <laughs> okay, so this is I wanted to ask you this later, but I'll ask you this now since you brought it up. Have you created a different kind of experience around birthdays for your daughter than was created for you? And is that conscious or just unconscious? I think that Jen and I try to do things that are meaningful for Dahlia and, and things that she would like. You know, we, 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 we aren't into massive events, you know, and some and right. sort of over-the-top parties. And I don't know that, that we have consciously... And- yeah. I was going to say, but neither you nor Jen, I imagine, were raised with that, right? Like, I assume Jen wasn't raised with massive over-the-top parties, yeah, just yeah. from the little I know about her family. Right. Yeah. But it's like, but you know, f- but for right. we, for example, one year we said, would you like to have a big party or would you like to invite two friends to go to Legoland? And we'll just, we'll bring everybody mm-hmm. to Legoland. Yeah. And, that. and that's what she opted for, you know, and she had a fucking blast. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I did that with Mariana too. We went to Disneyland. We did different things like that. Yeah. Although I will say from my own experience, I didn't have a particularly good feeling around those celebratory days as a child because I always, you know, as we talked about before in the podcast, I was very alone as a child, not very engaged with my parents. They didn't engage me very often. So on a regular basis, I didn't feel particularly special throughout the year. You know, I kind of felt like, I mean, my parents always told me I was smart and great, but 
that none of their actions supported like me feeling special per se, um, just kind of left on my own in some ways. So my experience around the birthday thing was to feel like anytime something was made special, like a birthday, that it felt a lot like bullshit to me. It felt like a hallmark event as opposed to an honest expression. That's how I came to make sense of it as a child because I didn't feel that what you describe your mother giving you throughout the year. I never felt that as a child. Mm-hmm. So when birthdays came around, and my, I remember my dad getting cakes for me. And, you know, we've talked about it before. My dad was the sweetest man in the world. He didn't know how to engage. He didn't know how to be there. He didn't know how to be present or connect. But he was a very kind and gentle man, loving man. But so I'm like a birthday. I do remember one birthday cake, my 13th birthday at the dining room table in my apartment with my dad. I remember the cake because it said 13 going on 30, which became a movie years later. What? On Doheny, the apartment on Doheny. Yes, on Doheny, where I lived when I was 13. But I mean, like that always felt like, okay, so we did the cake and then uh, whatever. I went back downstairs to my room. Like, I don't, I don't have a lot of memories about this was with the anticipation of joy. It was more of the anticipation of, oh, somebody's going to make a big deal and that's going to feel false to me. Mm-hmm. So it always felt negative to me. And I think I, I transport, uh, transported, I think I transferred a little of that to my experience as a father as well. I never made as big a deal of Mariana's birthday. Cheryl did in some ways because she had the business and we, when she was younger, but then it was more like quiet and dinners and not big dramatic kinds of things. And I wonder if she felt, you know, I think, I, and also I think because her mother made a bigger deal, I took a step back from that as a divorced parent. Like I didn't, I didn't feel I had a facility for that. And I felt like I couldn't live up to her, what her mother was doing. So I kind of stepped back from that. You know, I tried to the best I could make her feel loved throughout the year and didn't make such a big deal of the celebratory time because it felt so negative to me. And I, I probably, if you asked her, she would probably say that I underwhelmed, I underwhelmed or underplayed those times, but, you know, for the, from the context of mm-hmm. my experience, mm-hmm. which I feel, you know, sad, a little bit sad for, for her, but I know her mother gave her that. So at least she was, she got that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't have strong memories of uh, birthday celebrations or anything that's sort of celebrating me until my, well, let's see, 10th birthday and then maybe bar mitzvah. But neither do I have any f- sort of feeling or memory that I wasn't made to feel special or that birthdays right. or that I didn't was that, I, that I didn't care about birthdays. Although mm-hmm. I, I most for most of my life, I haven't cared that much about birthdays. Okay. Now, let me bring this up because this is interesting based on that comment. So I didn't feel very good about any of the birthdays that, you know, were done for me because as a child, birthdays are done for you in theory, right? Mm -hmm. Your parents Mm -hmm. do them. It's part of the things where you, you know, whether they care about that or not by the, what they do, that's just what you take. The first birthday, I remember having um, agency for myself and for you was our 21st birthdays Mm -hmm. because we're born, Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know, we're born three days apart and we we were very close friends when we were 21. We were both in the Bay Area at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, our birthdays are in May. So the school year was ending for the first week part of our birthday. And then we both went home for the second part of our birthday. Mm-hmm. So we created, uh, I mean, just for me, I mean, this may not be true for you, but for me, it was still the best experience of a birthday celebration week that I've ever had in my whole life. I've never done anything like that since. That was a great. That was a great birthday celebration. Oh, we went river rafting. We went to well, shake, let's, we went slow to down. Don't, don't 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 go over it so quickly. So we started in the Bay Area portion of our birthday with a weekend, a one night, two day river rafting trip. 
mm-hmm. on the American River. Mm-hmm. Had you ever been river rafting prior to that point? No, no, no. I Neither never, had I. Yeah. And my, let me tell you my memories of that, and then you can tell me your memories of that. Or would you like tell? Do you have memories of that trip? No, I, I can see uh, the picture of us in my mind sitting at the front of the raft. Right. We 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 sat in the whole two days in the very yeah. front of the raft on the other side. Yeah. And I, but um, I don't remember so a lot. I know fun. I know that you did not enjoy like the overnight. Well, the the only thing I didn't enjoy at the overnight was the sleeping outside and the taking a bowel movement in the woods. Those are the two things I didn't know. I am not a big woodsy person. We know this. Yes. But everything else about that trip, we we had meals around a campfire. They were I remember we had lobster once. Uh, <laughs> oh, I can remember. But now that you say it. And I there was that guy that. who ran the trip who owned yeah. the company, I think. I yeah. can't remember his name, but he was just a fun, nice guy, older yeah. guy. That was a great trip, yeah. Uh, and there was sitting around and that part, that whole kind of community aspect of sitting around having shared meals and being outside and with wine and lobster. I mean, you, you know, it's not exactly a horrible thing. I mean, and what, I don't remember what else we ate, but, uh, but the rafting itself, I just remember the, I remember, I can, I can remember the going down the river and us in the front and the water splashing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the, and wearing the sunglasses and mm-hmm. that blue thing mm-hmm. and the paddling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember being feeling exhilarated with the water was, and the paddling, the, with the water and the paddling and the thing and the paddling and the watering and the paddling <laughs> and the other thing. And there was one point where we hit this horrible rapid and everybody flew off the raft except me. You remember that? This is a true story. There was one rapid that right? you, was, I, it, was you, I out. Yeah, you went in too. I was literally the only person, and there's no reason why. I mean, I was holding on. I don't know. I braced well. I was I was in front so I could see it. I think that was part of it. And so I braced myself in a certain way, whereas the people behind, and, and you obviously often in those days were not paying attention to what you were doing. <laughs> you were not always looking in front of you. I suspect I was paying attention. <laughs> I, let me just say, you often would get distracted. Would that be fair? You would yeah, that's be fair. That's distracted. Fair. But, I, but I suspect that on, in that moment, I, I probably was not distracted. If my life, my life was counting on it, I probably was not distracted. Well, but let me say this. You also weighed about a postage stamp. I mean, you were very thin. And so that could have been, a, I had more girth than you did. That may have a lower center of gravity in the boat. Mm-hmm. So that might have been the reason I stayed in the boat while you yeah. fell out. But everyone else behind us fell out too, including the guide. So I, I don't know how to explain that. It was a pretty intense rapid. The boat went up. Mm-hmm. Side, it was a thing. Yeah, um, but that was the most fun, actually, physical exertion I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> I went on to kayak and done other yeah, things yeah, in yeah. your life, but uh, for me, that was it. I still have been wanting to go river rafting again for it's, decades, it's and have great, not done it's it. It's great fun. Well, let's do it together. That would be fun to yeah, do. Yeah, we could do that for some older birthday. Um, and then, okay, so we did that two-day trip. In the <laughs> only, river only difference raft. is one of us would then die rather than just falling out of the raft. Well. Dying makes for a great story. A great That's story. A great story. It's a great story. I, I might even allow myself to die just so you had that story. That would be my gift, my birthday <laughs> gift to you. So you could then tell that story for the limited years you had left. Yeah, very but good. But it's a great story. Um, and if you had video of that, even better. Yeah. But uh, this is the moment where he loses breath. It's brilliant. Yeah. Watch, watch. You see that? You see his, all the energy goes out of his face, right? There. Dead. <laughs> right there. Right there, there, right there. So then, then we went for our first of two extraordinary dinners. Mm-hmm. Where did we go? Chez Panisse. Chez Panisse, the famous restaurant run by the famous chef Alice Waters. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we had a multi-course meal. We sat on the Chez Panisse. was a very intimate, kind of beautiful little woodsy kind of restaurant right in Berkeley. Still for there. those of you who don't know it. Yeah. yeah. And it, it was it was the restaurant of California cuisine. It sort of set the table, if you will, to use the metaphor, for a California cuisine that came for the next 20, 30 years after. It was the precursor to Wolfgang Puck, one could argue. Right, it, Alice Waters really. You could you could argue, you could argue it was the precursor to everything that followed in California, with Nouvelle Nouvelle cuisine in California cooking, where you made the ingredients uh, themselves. Um, you know the spotlight. It, yeah, it, it, she she changed she changed food in in California. Right. Everything was fresh. Everything was local. Yeah, she did, which then really could argue for the whole country. She was a she was a trendsetter and still is revered by many in that that industry for all. And then she did gardens for schools and she's done a bunch of things around food and, and local food and things. But her cooking was amazing. And Jeremiah Tower, a lot of very famous chefs got their start in that kitchen. But yeah. we had literally uh, have the menu. underestimate her her impact on on. No, the- no, I don't think you can. It was genius. So we want. Of course, we were. Um, you know, privileged kids, you much more than me, but I piggybacked on your privilege. And we, so we went to the, uh, I definitely did. We, uh, so we decided to go to this very famous restaurant. We had, it was like a, I have the menu still. I don't have it with me. It's in my storage, you know, I wish I did. I just didn't have access to it. We had like a five course meal. We had three different kinds of liquor, which is, I had only done that once before, which is your 16th birthday, which was prior to that, the best meal I ever had in my life. That's another story. You still have the menu, don't you, for the Shape and dinner? I have the menu. It's We signed it. I have a bottle of wine, the label from one oh, of the bottles so of wine. So there you go. So too. that is a ritual. Right. We, so took, the, signing, we took the labels. Yep, signing wine labels, signing menus. That right. is a ritual that I did for years and years into my adulthood until, yeah. my, I, until my early 40s. Right. And that felt so meaningful because, again, it's one of those things that you can look back on, mm-hmm. right? It's something you can do later to evoke memory and feeling. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember exactly what we had. It was a great meal. It was a beautiful evening. That was, like, incredible, right? Is that your memory of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was It was, It was. was incredible. And they, we sat, if I recall correctly, on that enclosed patio in the front part of the restaurant. When you go in, you round to the right, and there's an enclosed patio. I'm almost positive that's where we sat. I have a visual memory in my head. I don't. I'm sitting in that, yeah, I don't that remember. table. Well, you, you forget. But anyway, so it was it was lo- it was just beautiful and it was fancy and it, but it was but it wasn't a fancy restaurant. It was a very relaxed restaurant, very comfortable restaurant, but the food was very fancy. Yeah. Good distinction. I mean, it doesn't feel, I mean, it, it, it is fancy because the prices are fancy. Yeah. The food is, you know, what is au cuisine. Right. But, it's considered fancy. Yeah. But the, the vibe of, I mean, they really did, you know, they just get the, the balance at that place. So perfect for me, it was so perfect. so perfect, right? It feels, it feels um, relaxed and unhurried and yet just insanely perfect and professional and, you know. Right. And my other memory of that on that same vein was, you know, I remember this as a kid because I didn't come from this experience. I mostly learned this through you and your family, but going to fancy or literally fancy restaurants where you had to dress and wear a coat and a tie. And I didn't start that way with my dad, but I got that way in my teen years through mostly through your family. Thank you. A lot of those restaurants made you feel uncomfortable, especially as a child. You felt like you were, you know, you had to behave in a certain way. You just always on edge in a certain way. That was my experience early. Chez Panisse was so comfortable 
Mm-hmm. I, I think visually it was comfortable, and the mood they set there was Alice Waters is like come into my house and have a meal. Mm-hmm. That's the mood I think she set. Yeah, there. that's still my favorite kind of place. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's funny. I went through a period in my twenties where I liked the fancier thing, mm-hmm. and then as I got older, I liked it less and less, and now I can't stand it. Now I never want to dress up to go to dinner. Right. But anyway, it's interesting. But that was that. So that was the Bay Area portion of that celebration. And mm-hmm. then we we came down to Los Angeles, and what did we do? Take pick it up from there. I, I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to remember. Did we go to Lorangerie? Did yes. we go to Lorangerie? I can't believe your, your adult my, your memory is unbelievable. Then we went. Okay, so I'll tell the story since your memory is not as good. Uh, yeah. So we went from the comfortable, beautiful, but really relaxed environment of Chez Panisse to the elegant, formal French environment of a restaurant called L'Orangerie, which was at that time in the 80s, arguably one of the top five restaurants in America and the, mm-hmm. the, the best restaurant in the West by far. I mean, in terms of reputation and quality of food and everything. Certainly the best French restaurant in yeah, Los Angeles. period. And probably the best French restaurant on the, the west of the Rockies. I think it was the best French restaurant west of Chicago, but yes, even west of the Rockies. But um, So that was a much more formal environment. If you, I, I wish we could show you on a podcast the pictures of the dining room at Chez Panisse, which really felt much like somebody's home, to the dining room of, of L'Orangerie, which felt like Versailles, the palace at Versailles. Yeah, very, very probably elegant. Probably modeled after. Yeah, very, very elegant. Really incredibly uh, elegant. And yeah, you, you wouldn't go, you would not go to L'Orangerie wearing a pair of jeans. No, and you, you, I think they, in those days, I'm pretty sure they required both a jacket and a tie for men. We never would have thought to go there without a coat and a tie and looking, you know, beautiful. Yeah, I, I may have bought a new silk tie for vacation. I don't know. I mean, that's right. Yeah. And, and no, you and I were both very into clothes at that time. Yeah, and also we we were taught to behave in certain ritualistic and appropriate ways in certain contexts, right? Well, there you go. So to your point, right? So dressing, yes, right, is a ritual. That's right. And you could and I would argue that while that while it might seem fussy, it adds meaning and specialness to the event. Mm-hmm. That's did. the point. It it adds meaning. That's right. Because I'm I'm changing my clothes, I'm putting on something different in order to go to this restaurant mm-hmm. and that adds meaning to it. Yeah, there is no nothing question. special about putting a tie on, but when I'm combining it in a particular context of going out to eat, then it becomes a ritual and that adds meaning. Right. And and, and that ritual was more meaningful for us because we didn't spend also I would argue it's context is everything, right? For us, it was much more meaningful the dressing up because it's not something we did every day. It's not like we went to corporate jobs or we wore that outfit every day as a normal part of our routine. So right. it was, this, it was in, uniquely spe- or particularly special for us because it was different than our everyday experience. So it added another layer of meaning by mm-hmm. doing something in, like you said, the specialness of it. Mm-hmm. I remember that appetizer of the coddled eggs and caviar. It's a, it's an unforgettable single bite. Describe what that is. My my best recollection is it basically like the I don't know if I mean if you've ever had like really really slow cooked scrambled eggs. So the, those are those are eggs that are scrambled at a very low very low heat. And they, they cook very slowly so that the the consistency mm. is kind of uh, more velvety than anything else. Velvety. Just, yeah. And then they, they basically, so that's the coddling part, I think. And then they somehow get the egg 
back into the shell. It just has this little hole on top. They put the coddled eggs back into the shell and then they they topped it with uh, some caviar. And then you eat this. It's almost like a, I mean, it's damn near like a, a pudding, but it's it's scrambled eggs. But it's, and so you eat this egg with the caviar, the saltiness, the, the, the sort of bland, um, but um, comforting coddled eggs, then with the sort of spike of the saltiness of the caviar. It was just an incredible bite of food. It was amazing. That's my memory of it. Uh, and then we had multiple courses, I'm sure, uh, meat with meat. I'm sure there was meat involved. There might have been lamb, who knows, um, and desserts and champagne and red wine, and we had a dessert wine. In those days, you and I were both very partial to the special select late harvest Johannesburg Riesling from Joseph Phelps. That's correct. (laughs) It's amazing what you remember 30 years later. Like that never has left my head. I don't think I've had it in 30 years, by the way, but it's never left my head. And I do remember the other, we may have had that, or we may have really splurged because I also remember, and I remember learning this from you or your father, there's a French dessert wine called Chateau Ikem. Is it Chateau Ikem? Mm-hmm. Right, that I remember from as a teenager learning about your father telling me that that was like the best dessert wine in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. that stuff. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a so turn. Yeah, that mm-hmm. stuff is like a thousand dollars a bottle. I mean, it's like crazy expensive but for for a small bottle. Yeah, we may have had <laughs> we may have had a half bottle of that, or we may have had just two glasses of that. I don't know. I'm. It's what pushed the check over the hundreds and multiple hundreds of dollars of the pretentious fucking crazy meal that you and I had that was so good yeah and it, this is what's interesting too because you know I I didn't grow up with wealth in the same way you did but but I also have always believed that in so many ways right you get what you pay for and sometimes when you go for that, a really that is almost never proven wrong right and when you go for a memory that has such high quality and high connection value ritualistic value like we're, we're three decades later and i can still you can see my energy i wish you could see this on a podcast you can hear it when i'm describing this meal the the, the amount of joy and mem- in my memory and the uh, around that experience i mean i would never spend that kind of money now for anything and yet it was so worth it like i can't have any memory except wow was that worth it so worth it it's interesting mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and and this that really supports this idea that I have that, you know, if you love it, it's worth whatever you paid for it. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And, and I, I want to bring up something else that I think is important. I think there are kind of two basic ideas that can be illustrated by the uh, idea of a bottle of champagne. Mm-hmm. So if you are given a bottle of champagne, what many, many people do is they will put it in the refrigerator or put it in the closet or whatever mm-hmm. they do with it. Right. And what? Save it for an important time. Exactly. And they will save it for an important occasion. That's right. Or what I tend to do, for better or worse, is I open the champagne and that makes it a special occasion. Yeah, That makes whenever I'm opening it a special occasion. And that speaks again then to ritual, right? The bottle Mm. of champagne in and of itself is just a bottle of champagne. But by opening the bottle of champagne, it transforms whatever I'm doing into a special occasion, as opposed to waiting for a special occasion and then opening the bottle of champagne. That's that's interesting. That's that's a really insightful point, I think. But I also think that that the people who do the the other thing, which is save it for a special occasion, my my guess and. I've done this. It's been a really long time, although not that often. But I get my guess is when they get to the occasion 
and they pull out that champagne that they've been saving for all that time, it feels incredibly meaningful to them as well. Oh, I'm not saying it doesn't feel me. Of course it feels meaningful yeah. to them. Uh, I, I'm simply saying that that ritual is so powerful yeah. that it, it it can it has ritual has the power to transform the quotidian into something special. Yeah. And 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 yeah. that's why I think ritual ought to be practiced more often and why, you know, you can open a bottle of champagne and I don't want to give anybody, anybody who's listening the the, you know, the perception that like, I'm just opening bottles of champagne. Drinking all the time. That is the power of a ritual. And I just, I had another thought that I, I wanted to share. Now I, I've lost it. You know what it reminds me of when you just said that, you know, it, it, right. It, whatever occasion you decide to, whatever moment you open it, that makes it meaningful. But it also suggests, again, the connection of relationship, right? Like with who, who you're drinking it with, whom you're drinking it with, right? Like how- Well, that goes to, our, for example, our meals. I mean, our meal, right. it was an incredible meal, but, but it was enhanced and made more special because of the, the connections that we were making to, to one another while we were having it. Right. And it also felt like in many ways, as I think about this in retrospect, I'm not sure I had this understanding at the time, but when I look back at it, it seems to me like it is, it is a moment of- of transition from childhood to adulthood for us, right? We were we were childhood friends, and now we were adults in some new way. And yeah, you could say we were ritualizing that that shift. We, yeah, that, we ritualized that right. shift. So let's just finish off the birthday thing. Oh wait, before we do that, I actually want to bring up something you just said about the wine. You know, there's I know this is you're gonna, you're going to roll your eyes when I quote this movie, but um, uh, the 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 Lindsay Lohan Disney movie. Um, with the twins, all of a sudden, Parent Trap. Mm-hmm. I love this movie. I watched it when Mariana was little when it first came out. When Lindsay Lohan was a child actor, brilliant child actor, by the way, very sweet and engaging on the screen. But there's a scene near the end of this movie when the the, the premise of the movie is the two 10-year-old twin girls are trying to reunite their parents who have divorced when they were born. And then each child went off with one parent, not knowing the other one existed, right? They come together at a camp. Their parents both send them to when they're 10. They realize they have twin sisters and they realize they each want to meet their other parent. That's the premise of the movie. So then they switch places. One goes back to England where the other one grew up and one goes back to Napa. And they, with the other parent, they've never met for a few months. And then they have to switch them back. And so the dad in the movie played by Dennis Quaid owns a vineyard in Napa. And when the, the mom comes to the, to switch the kids back, the kids go to sleep and they're down at the vineyard. And he says, let me show you something. And now they haven't seen each other in 11 years since the kids were born, but they've always sort of loved each other. And they, they can't remember why they broke up and whatever. There's a lot of connection and attraction there still. And so they go down to his wine cellar and he, and he, opens a cabinet and he takes out a bottle of wine. He's it's from VJ day, like victory in Japan day. And she's like, wow, that's a, he's a collector. He's a wine collector as well as a producer of wine. And she's like, wow, that's amazing. And she says, and then he shows her this other bottle of wine. He says, this is the wine my parents drank at their wedding. It's like, oh, that's amazing. And she grabs, there's a third bottle there and she grabs it. And it's from 1983. And it's, I can't remember the name. She says, what's this one? And the camera pans to him and his face kind of has a, a wry smile. And he says, that one's really hard to get. It took me years to get it. She says, what is it? He says, it's the wine we drank at our wedding. I now have every bottle that's ever been made. And it's this kind mm-hmm. of goosebumpy moment, right? About uh, pow- the power of that connection, that ritual. And she says, can we open a bottle? And he says to her, and this is the line, you're the only one I would drink it with. That, that- and then they don't show you what happens after <laughs> they get back together. And they get divorced. 
again. You know, this is a hopeful story, and you want to bring oh, it cynical. Sorry. But that, sorry. but that line really sort of encapsulated to me everything you had been talking about. That idea, mm-hmm. like you're the only one I would drink it with. The meaning is just ratcheted up multiple layers, right? As opposed, and I have to- never, and I have never drunk Joseph Phelps Late Harvest Riesling with anyone but you. And I appreciate since, that. I feel since you. That. I feel you, dude. Um, yeah. No, but the other thing, the other thing is, and this is this is not exactly about ritual. This this is sort of opens things up. But you know, you, yeah, you great. You know, you save your that bottle of champagne for a special occasion, and then mm-hmm. you know, you you go to work, you get hit by a bus, and like, oh well, right. That's possible. That, you know, but you just make. Why don't you make some special occasions? Well, that's again, that's another way to look at it. I think popular yeah. culture and 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 literature and books and film have suggested to us this idea of saving it for the right time. And the, again, the idea of the right time is a dangerous thing because, as you just said, that right time might never come. Things might happen. You might break up. You might die. All those things, right? So any right. moment can be the right time if you choose to make it the right time. Yes. And I think that many people's lives are bereft of meaning. Yeah. Which is why I think a lot of people spend their days at work dreaming about when they can go home and, and drink mm-hmm. until they pass out. So this this just took a turn. I think that, <laughs> no, I mean, so I think that, yeah. or, you know, whatever it is. But so I think that ritual, and I, I know that there's some irony because we're talking about a ritual that involves drinking, but yeah. that, be that as it may, you know, I think that ritual can add meaning to the quotidian and that is worth looking at. And that's yeah, why rituals no are worth practicing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, most people struggle to find meaning in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the sad part is also, I think piggybacking on what you said is people wait for meaning. They're waiting for the right meaning to happen as opposed to deciding that meaning is present today. Mm-hmm. Right, there's a different different kind of mindset associated with that. Let's let's pivot quickly to the last uh, element of the f- the week long birthday celebration. The fourth and final element was the Robin Is Williams concert. No, oh, the Robin the Robin concert. Williams concert at the Universal yeah, Amphitheater. God, you know what? I mean, until you said that just now, I didn't even remember that. <laughs> God, you're so fucking old. I just didn't remember. But now oh. that you say it, I can remember. I remember there were seats. Yes, I remember people were laughing. I remember there was laughter. I remember the lights were dimmed. And I also remember at one point, Robin Williams, like a guy in the third, we had pretty good seats, but a guy in the third row like, gets up. And Robin Williams has the house lights come up quickly. He says, where are you going? He says, i got to go to the bathroom. He says, we'll wait. <laughs> and he just kind of stood there for like 10 minutes, just tapping his foot on the audience and like on the stage and then looking annoyed. It's very funny. Ah, Robin Williams was, was so great, wasn't he? It was great. It was so funny, especially in the early days. So funny. Anyway, so that was the 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 the, the big birthday celebration. And for years, you know, I when I had that children's learning center, my partner, my friend at the time, Catherine, she would always talk about for her, like the birthday was a birthday week. Like that's how she made meaning around birthdays for herself, or her kids, her parents. It was always, and maybe she was taught that her mother was into that too. But it was this idea of a birthday week. Right, it was very celebratory. It was very meaningful, and it wasn't mm. celebratory in terms of buying stuff, expensive stuff. It was more doing things for each other, sharing things with each other, writing poems for each other, whatever you know, lighting candles in that context. But it was all about creating this kind of very appreciative, longer celebration than just the day. Because why should it just be a day if you're going to mm-hmm. celebrate? It's an interesting idea. All right. Well, then this this kind of leads me to my 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 big question. Go. 
which is, do you like being celebrated today? And how do you like being celebrated if you do? You know, it's interesting. I, I, since my parents died, you know, eight years ago, basically, and my daughter, you know, has been in college and I see her intermittently um, and I'm not in a relationship, I don't have a lot of people celebrating me. I don't have a lot of daily sort of witnessing of who I am and what's meaningful about me, which I miss and is sad. So the times, the, the special things that stand out, like in the last five years, a few years ago, my daughter for my birthday, I, I don't actually need a lot of celebration. I don't actually crave it um, or hope for it. But my daughter wrote me a play, like a eight-page play about her relationship with me. That kind of thing I appreciate. I do kind of, it's kind of an old world thing, right? Like make something for me or express something to me, a poem mm -hmm. or a, a, a written thing. Those things mean a lot more to me than, those things mean a lot more to me than something you would spend money on. But those things, and and over the last decade or so, like the, the, the birthdays that have meant the most to me have been all with my daughter and all, like she wrote me a, a poem one year, a short story kind of thing. You know, those are the things that have been meaningful to me. You know, the last few years have been hard emotionally for me for lots of reasons, but those moments have been the most meaningful. What about you? Do you crave or? I, I For a long time, I, I eschewed it so, so hard. Mm. Uh, and the first time I really allowed it to happen was my 40th birthday. Mm. So oh, that was just like two years ago. <laughs> and then... <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Go on. And I actually was surprised by uh, how moved I was and how how good that felt. You know, but I spent I spent so many years uh, feeling sort of like uh, uh, you know looking at looking at the past year with regret and looking at the year to come with dread mm -hmm. and and feeling like I hadn't accomplished anything and 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 really not valuing myself. Mm -hmm. Me too. And you know, I mean, it's something that that really. Eh, hits home for me these days that I'm just, I don't know why it's occurring. Like this is making so much sense to me so late in my life. This idea that as we treat ourselves, so do we tend to treat other people. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't think that I was especially uh, compassionate towards myself for mm -hmm. a long time. Yeah. I, I think I treated myself well in in certain ways, you know. I, I didn't, I don't think I didn't punish myself, mm -hmm. but I I I didn't want to be celebrated, and I I also, I mean, part of that also was a result of just sort of my dad, and I just didn't want to feel like, you know, I I had this feeling like there's nothing special about me, I'm not worth celebrating, and I don't want to point point to myself mm -hmm. in that in that way you know because my dad was just all about pointing to himself yeah mm -hmm. but I, I i'm a lot more comfortable with it than i used to be yeah. um I mean, well I'm, part of that is probably because you have a nice family right you, it feels fun more fun more enjoyable probably to to be celebrate with a daughter and a wife that you like that feel mm -hmm. comfortable that feel meaningful you know mm -hmm. it's always that context yeah no i was just gonna say i mean even just things that I, 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 you know, can tell you intellectually and m more or less emotionally are ridiculous, like Father's Day. Right. Um, you know, and it's just a completely superficial. Um, sure. It's not, I'm real, I don't even want to call it a holiday. It's, it's just ridiculous. I, even that I've relaxed into, yeah. you know, things like that where because I have a family, you know, and yeah, you know, it's hard. It's hard, you know, when your daughter writes you a, when your seven year old makes you a card on construction paper that right. says "Happy Father's Day." You know, I mean, right? How, and how, 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 you, how can you not be touched by that? 
Yeah. I mean, as as we've always enjoyed the phrase, you can deconstruct culture, but you can't escape it, right? Like she lives in the world and those things are celebrated and taught as meaningful. So you can fight against that and try and, you know, say that doesn't mean anything, or you can kind of take a breath and, and appreciate the little things like that. Right. Well, and that strikes me as something that you've struggled with. Yeah. This idea of deconstructing culture, but not escaping it. I think that you you often fight against culture. Yeah, I do. I yeah. struggle. It's yeah. hard for me, right? It's hard for me. And, and so much of it was shaped, again, by an experience of of feeling unworthy or unloved or uncared for. And, and, and around ritual, around celebration especially, you know, I don't... For me, it was more about, as an adult, like not wanting to do these things because I don't want to be disappointed. Because I think as a child, I felt so disappointed by what my parents didn't do or the way they I felt. So I always felt like better to not do it and feel disappointed than to do it and expecting a something. And, and, you know, it was hard for me to deconstruct my own expectation because I was still like a little boy wanting something meaningful to be done, even as an adult, because it never because I never had it as a child. So that that was challenging for me. Right. Yeah. Okay. So here's my big question. And it's a very small, specific question in the context of a big question. I'm going to read you a quote, and I want you to tell me the author of the quote and the book it's from, if you can, or either. Ready? Is this going to be embarrassing to me if I can't do it? No, no, it should not be embarrassing to you at all. You ready? All right. Okay. There she left... Sorry, let me start again. (laughs) That's so funny. There she lusted after her lovers, whose genitals were like those of donkeys, and whose emission was like that of horses. What the fuck? <laughs> Do you need to hear it again? I don't need to hear it again at all. <laughs> and I can't tell you who wrote it. Very famous guy. Okay, I told you it was a guy. Might not be a guy. Very famous person. Cervantes. No, that would be God. And the book is the Bible. That is a okay. quote from the Bible. You know, oh, I didn't well. read the Bible as a child, but now after hearing that quote, I'm thinking there yeah. might be a lot more to it than I realized. This was yeah, a so, you, so, so, so you know that you know that God did not write that book. You know, this is uh, as our on our podcast about God. This is a point of contention. Some people believe that God did write that book through the instrument of man. That was God speaking through man. I do not believe that. You do yeah, not yeah, believe God, that. Yeah, God, yeah, God didn't write that book. <laughs> anyway, when you buy the book, when you go to the uh, Amazon and you look up the Bible. Who's the author? It says God right next to it. God wrote it. <laughs> I wonder what he, how he gets his royalty checks. How does he get those yeah. fucking royalty checks? Anyway, it's probably public, Jeff no, it's public domain. It's public yeah. domain. There's no royalty. That's public domain. You make a good point. You make a good point. So anyway, that's really all I have to say. I just want to go back to what we started with. Think about this thing. Right now we go by Kenny and Joshua. Think Ezekiel and Jedediah. Locks in the bagel. Think about it. Locks in the bagel with Ezekiel and Jedediah. No. <laughs> no. No, that would ha- that would ha- no, that would have to be like homesteading with Ezekiel and Jedediah. Modern, you know what? Like like modern homesteading with Ezekiel and Jedediah. That works. Does that work for you? I don't know anything about homesteading. Well, that totally works. How how like how to how to plant how to plant your own your own crops with Ezekiel and <laughs> And Jedediah. How to shear sheep with Ezekiel and Jedediah. That works. All right. Mazel tov. Locks in the Bagel is a production of Kenjamin Media, a curated series of conversations about things that matter. 
For more information about our podcast, please go to KenjaminMedia.com.